Man, these world wars keep coming up. I in just our keep episodes. popping up, like you know, just like carrying along doing politics. And the, oh shit, it's World War One again. Oh god, yeah, get out the machine guns. Yeah, the trenches. God damn it. Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. Satan did nothing wrong. Uh, except for Harry Potter. He did create Harry Potter. The greatest sin of them all. Speaking of sin, let's talk about Canada. Canada? Why? I'm glad you asked, James. As it turns out, against all odds... We actually have a lot of Canadian listeners. <laughs> really? Yeah, we do. And uh, we have no idea who they are, but the stats are saying that Canada is actually our second biggest listening country just behind the USA, which is not surprising because that's where we're from. Of course. Yes. yes. But we have also reached exactly one listener in the UK. Huh. We don't know who they are, but someone from the old country has heard our voices. The Queen. Yeah, definitely <laughs> the Queen. <laughs> You know, Aaron, this is kind of a neat coincidence, because this week we're covering both a Canadian and an Englishman. We are? Yeah, that's right. Winston Churchill and Sir Arthur Curry. Nice. But wait, with the release of that Churchill movie starring Gary Oldman, I suspect anyone who saw it will already know everything about Churchill. Anyone who has seen any kind of biopic about Churchill will know everything. No. Definitely. Definitely not. Uh, what? This is all very confusing. I, I thought Winston Churchill was like a symbol of freedom and peace. Well, okay, he's definitely been made a symbol, but the man himself, well... Mm, okay, okay, now now you've got my attention. We should hurry down to the history lab so I can find out what the fuck you're talking about! To the history lab! darkest hours of the 20th century, two complicated men stood up and said, No! Across two world wars, across the seas, and across the darkness of the battlefield, Winston Churchill and Sir Arthur Curry carried on against these troubled times. One a cigar-chewing world leader, the other a commander in the Canadian military. Their acts colored the world of today and shaped the future for generations to come. Tell me, James, uh -huh. uh, if you could describe the kind of living space you think is ideal for me, uh, what would you say? Oh, ideal living space. Okay. For me. Uh, shit. Well, this is a two-part answer. Okay. So, for for some of your life, you're going to be living in an igloo <laughs> made out of hot fudge. Perfect. Yes, uh, because you're a fat ass. Oh, my God. <laughs> then, you're going you're gonna to be kicked out. And you'll be living on my couch. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen. No. <laughs> so, my ideal living space, uh, you, have, you have your opportunity to uh, retaliate. I have a few ideas. <laughs> oh, no. um, you would live in a cathedral because you're so fucking tall and wiry, you need the space <laughs> to move around, right? Yeah. Uh, that would be for, you know, your regular day-to-day. -day. But you would have a vacation home made out of egos and butter. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, 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 right. and you would have a factory with giant smokestacks that look mm. like cigarettes. Well, <laughs> to get enough nicotine, I would just stand at the top of the smokestack <laughs> and inhale. Just get this giant funnel over yeah. the top and stick it up your ass. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? 
I live in a cathedral. Oh wait, that never mind. <laughs> oh my god. Okay, right. well that's good. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, computer, please bring up Winston Churchill and Sir Arthur William Curry. Oh, uh, James, mm-hmm. tell me what Winston Churchill is best known for. Well, Winston Churchill is best known for being the Prime Minister of the British Empire during World War II. Ah, I think I knew that one already. Yeah. So, so far yeah. you haven't surprised me. Uh, just wait. So why don't you tell me what he looked like? Well, uh, he looked like a very pudgy man with a cigar. That's it? We all knew that. Oh, that's it. <laughs> we all know that Gary Oldman put on a fat suit for the movie. Really? Yeah. What? Well, maybe. I don't know. Oh. It's Gary Oldman. He might have just gotten fat for the movie. I don't no, know. That's true. Uh, well, that's that's all you need to picture. Okay. Just yeah. a fat man with a cigar. Got it. Now, I don't know about Sir Arthur Curry, so what is he best known for? Well, Arthur Curry is best known for being a very successful commander in World War One, cool. and is generally seen as one of the best commanders in the Canadian uh, military in their history. Wow. wow. Yeah. Hmm. So... Uh, what did he look like? Well, <clears throat> my favorite photo of him has him all dressed up in his regimental garb. Mm. He's got this kilt with some kind of sash, which looks like super badass. But from the waist up, he looks like a waiter. <laughs> uh, so he's business on top, party waist down. He's got a round face and sort of dreary eyes. Not much to say, really. This is one of the most ordinary-looking people I've ever laid eyes on. Oh, which is okay. kind of crazy, because he does not do ordinary things. We'll judge him by his actions, okay. not his appearance. And speaking of actions, mm. maybe we should just roll right over into Winston Churchill's early life so I can find out what you're talking about, about him not being, you know, a symbol of freedom and peace. Well, he is. And other things, too. Okay. Well, it's complicated. Okay. Anyway, let's start with his early life. Okay. So, Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Are we talking about the same Churchill? Yes. Okay, so his middle name is Leonard Spencer? Uh, according to Wikipedia. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh... So, uh, so he was born at Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire on November 30th, 1874. Which is weird to think, like 1874. Yeah, that is weird. Yeah, he was really old when he was leading world, during World War II. <laughs> anyway, so he was born to a very wealthy family that was one of the highest families in the British aristocracy. Well, lucky him! Mm-hmm. Uh, Churchill's grandfather had been a member of Parliament for ten years. Churchill's dad had also served with Parliament. And his mom came from an American family that was quite wealthy as well. Cool! Yeah. So, in fact, Churchill's parents are rather interesting people as well. Okay. They met in Paris and were engaged three days later. Oh, <laughs> I've only done that twice. It's crazy every time. Paris will get you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, in 1877, Churchill's grandpa, John Spencer Churchill, was appointed Viceroy of Ireland, and the family moved to Dublin, which was still British-controlled at this point in time. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, during their stay in Ireland, the Churchill family began running into some hardships. Winston's parents' relationship began to crumble, and his mom started seeing other men. What, like, like, like ghosts or something? Like, she just starts seeing other men. Oh, look, there's a man over there right now. I thought there was only one. <laughs> so she's cheating, is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. So Churchill never really had any relationship with his father, and his relationship with his mom, while better, still wasn't great. Got it. Churchill said about his mother... I loved her dearly, but at a distance. Ah! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're not going to do that in a Churchill voice, though. I, you know, I... I, I'm, I have so many of his quotes You just have here. to grab. I, I loved her dearly, <laughs> but at a distance. Uh, yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'll do better later on. We'll have a Churchill off at yeah. the <laughs> Uh So meanwhile, while in Ireland, Winston and his brother Jack 
which who might have been a half brother. Oh, fun! Yeah, yeah. Uh, they were educated by a governess. Nice. Now there's absolutely a ton of stuff about Churchill, and a million biographies having have been written about him. We don't really have the time to dissect everything uh, detail, everything detail, everything. <laughs> We don't really have the time to dissect everything about his life, so just bear with us. Okay. Uh, some of the stuff on Churchill is just not that interesting, so yeah, moving on. Okay. Uh, Churchill attended several different schools growing up, but usually misbehaved, was not punctual, and did not study as hard as he needed to. Uh, he did well in history, though. Oh! oh. Yeah. Mm, he might like our podcast. Like, he, rate, he subscribe, might. Churchill. <laughs> <laughs> we could really use a celebrity endorsement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so then Churchill's daddy said, Son, you gotta go become a soldier. Not an actual quote. Oh. Uh, but he said something like that. So Churchill <laughs> prepared to join the British military. Okay. Uh, then he went on a holiday tour of Europe. And then he tried to be admitted to the Royal Military Academy in Sandhurst, but was not admitted until after his third try to get in. Wow. So he's kind of a loser at yeah. this point. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he, he was finally accepted as a cadet in the cavalry. That's uh, kind of cool. And he did much better in military school than in regular school, and also showed himself to be quite good with horses. Aww. Yeah. Uh, then in January 1895, Churchill's dad died of syphilis. Ooh! But the cause of death was kept from Churchill, so Churchill just concluded growing up that members of his family always died young. Ah. Which is depressing. That is sad. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that's where we'll leave uh, the Hill of Churches for now. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, so far, I'm not seeing anything outside the ordinary. Right. He's a no. spoiled rich kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of spoiled rich kids, which Sir Arthur William Curry is not, okay. uh, let's move over into Sir Arthur William Curry's early life. Sounds good. Let's talk a little about how Sir Arthur Curry, famous Canadian military commander, got to Canada in the first place. Oh, he wasn't... Born there? Wait, oh, wait. Fuck. It's an interesting story. So, his grandparents, John Corrigan and Jane Garner, had to leave Ireland. Why? Why? Well, in the interest of time, let's just say that being a Protestant in Ireland was not fun in the 1830s. Canada was the obvious choice for the Corrigans, and the next obvious thing to do was to become Methodists. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, so one of them was Catholic, and the other was a Protestant, an Anglican, actually. (laughs) And then they both became Methodists, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, so they also changed their last name to Curry, Hmm. and they had nine children together, but only four managed to survive their childhoods, Hmm. which is still pretty good batting average. Yeah. (laughs) eldest son got married in 1868, and our man Arthur Curry saw his first days in Napperton, Ontario, growing up in the Curry family farm. Mm, yes. Okay. Um, so, when Arthur Curry was old enough to go to school, he just sort of jumped around from a lot of schools. Um, <laughs> he didn't really pick one for a, quite a while. Okay. He had a reputation as a prankster um, and was a little too lighthearted for some of the more serious schools in the area. Sounds like Churchill. <laughs> now, back then, school was pretty strict, even in Canada. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Despite his enjoyment of the occasional practical joke, Curry was also a good student and had a penchant for literature. Hmm. His future was his for the taking, and he planned to become a lawyer or a doctor, but his father died died when he was 15 and the family became too poor to send him to a university. Shit. Yeah. So, instead, he trained to become a teacher, but couldn't find a job after that. So, mm. he went back to finish high school, uh, literally weeks before taking his finals. Um, that would whisk him away to college. Hmm. Curry got in an argument with one of his teachers and left the school to find fortune in British Columbia. Awesome. So, he didn't finish high school. Okay. Uh, now, at this time, British Columbia was reaping the benefits of the freshly constructed transcontinental railway, hmm. meaning the place was just exploding with stories of newfound riches and the like. Uh, unfortunately for Curry, though, 
Nope. Uh, he was part of none of this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he became a teacher at a boys' school and just started treading water. Oh. Uh, and he was bored. Oh. So in the May of 1897, Curry joined the Canadian militia as a part-time gunner for a field artillery regiment. Hmm. In three years, he had done such a great job that he was offered an officer's commission. And this is actually kind of foreboding, this oh, officer's okay. commission. The problem is, when you take an officer's commission, you're expected to pay for your own uniforms and oh. also give whatever you're paid to the collective fund for the officer's mess. What? Yeah, huh. so. But Curry wasn't made of money. Right. He was just a teacher. So he quit that job and started selling insurance in order to be able to pay for his commission. Okay. Uh, it was around this time that he married a longtime friend named Lucy Chowworth Musters. Hmm. Which I know I'm pronouncing Chowworth wrong. Yeah. Um, who had been raised by his aunt and uncle after being abandoned by her father and her mother. Um... Well, her mother kind of abandoned her by dying while giving birth to her. What the fuck? That's ill considering. I did not mean to say it like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. So he marries his childhood friend. Well, yes. That's nice. That's okay. kind of cute. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Curry uh, may have been a military man part-time since hmm. Canada was not at war, but he took his role in the militia very, very seriously. Okay. He took every extra training course he could, studied military tactics in his free time, and spent every Saturday at the shooting range. Wow. Yeah, through his dedication and hard work... Millennials, listen up. <laughs> Curry rose from corporal to lieutenant colonel in the span of eight years. Wow. He was put in charge of the 5th Regiment. Hmm. And this whole time, he's still selling insurance and is doing super well. But okay. that's where we'll stop with Curry, and when we come back, we'll be talking about Winston Churchill's adult life. Okay. And I just want you all to brace yourselves. There's a lot coming. I've seen yeah. the pages. I haven't read them, but I've seen the pages. Wait, and, what pages? Uh, well, all the pages. We don't have a script. Right. We, no script. Cut <laughs> uh, it. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Sir Arthur Curry's young childhood life and into his almost middle ages. Yeah. Yeah, because now he's an insurance salesman. Um, but we're going to go back to Winston Churchill, and we're going to get started right away because, again, he's a huge figure, so there's a lot about him, yeah. so we're going to have to get through this as quickly as possible in order to keep the episode from killing us. So, yes. James, why don't you just get started with Winston Churchill? All right. So, we're back to Churchill. Yes. His dad had just died, and Churchill was a cadet in the British cavalry. Yes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have a ton of material to cover, so sit down, place the cat in the oven, buckle up, and prepare your, yourselves. <laughs> Uh, yes. Okay, so... <laughs> in 1895, Churchill was commissioned in the 4th Hussars Regiment of the British Army. He made about 150 pounds a year. Uh, that's money, not... Yeah. He's not gaining weight. Yeah, we know, we know. Uh, okay, fine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he spent much more than that on uh, on anything and everything. Oh. Uh, Churchill was also super eager to see military action and used his dying mother's influ influence... To get him sent to a war zone. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, and the British Empire had many war zones. Yes. So in the fall of 1895, Churchill was sent to Cuba during the Cuban War of Independence to fight alongside Spanish forces against the Cuban independence fighters. Okay. He was so, in a couple... Do you want to say so something? I was gonna, so that means he's fighting with colonists. Is that correct? Well, he's fighting, yeah, with the Spanish against the Cuban... Oh, got people. it. So he's fighting against... Against Cuban independence. The, yeah. Got it. Okay, that's kind of... Mm, I, I don't know. Let's keep 
keep going. As an American, yeah. it kind of, yeah. yeah. It uh, happens. So, yeah. <laughs> so whoa-oh, we're involved in another rebel uprising. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into more of that later. Okay. Uh, anyway, so he was in a couple skirmishes during this war. Uh, okay. Then Churchill visited the one and only United States of America. Yeah, baby. And was very impressed by the American people. As uh, he should be. Yes, oh. indeed. Mm. Uh, and he wrote back to his brother and mom about how great Americans were. I wonder what he liked about them. They were, like, hardworking and, well, and some other things we'll get to. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. In 1896, Churchill was then sent to Bombay, India. Churchill described India as a, quote, godless land of snobs and bores. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but he was stationed here for 19 months, so okay. take that, Churchill. Mm. Uh, during his stay here, Churchill had the realization that he kind of wasted his years of education, so he set on a crusade to educate himself. Cool. He started reading authors such as Plato, Adam Smith, Charles Darwin, and such. Okay. Uh, the most influential book he, had, he read, though, was Edward Gibbon's The History and the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Hmm. Which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. It was also at this time that Churchill started studying the politics of England and declared that he was a liberal in all but name. Uh, but here's the thing. Okay. He said he would never endorse the liberals, liberal party's support for Irish home rule. Oh. Uh, That's the only problem he had with the liberal classic, party. Classic British <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of the 20th century or the 18th, yeah. 19th century, whatever. So we'll get to Churchill's view of the Irish later. Okay. Hell, let, let's just do it now. Okay. <laughs> so how, what did Churchill think of Irish people? Uh, at first, he wasn't a big fan of the Irish. Ah. Uh, now, at first. Okay. Yeah. At the very end, he he decided, you know, well, well, maybe the Irish have something to offer. I see. Uh, but for a while, he didn't. So uh, some of these quotes and views came later from on in his life, so just keep that in mind. But we're talking about Ireland, so let's just cover this while we're here. Uh, Churchill didn't like the Irish. Okay. Later in his life, Churchill would help begin the controversial Black and Tans movement Ooh. to fight the IRA. Ooh. Uh, Churchill called the Black and Tans gallant and honorable officers. <laughs> Even though the Irish people tend to just see them as brutes and terrorists. Okay. Uh, he also wanted to use bombers to bomb what? Irish soldiers. Like bomber planes? Bomber planes, wow. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he also said, quote, We have always found the Irish a bit odd. They refuse to be English. <laughs> okay. Uh, and later he also said, Quote, the bloody Irish. What have they ever done for our wars? Ah, I think he'll take that back when World War One rolls around. Just a just thought. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so he also helped organize certain auxiliary police groups, one of which murdered 14 Irish people at a Gaelic football match. What the fuck? Known as the Croke Park Massacre. Jesus Christ. So anyway, this is the first window into the controversy of Winston Churchill. Okay. He's a hero to Americans and the British. Uh, he was even voted the most influential and favored British person of all times a few years ago. Wow. But if you don't happen to be British or American, chances are Churchill wouldn't have liked you. Delightful. Uh, and we'll get more of this later. Okay. But anyway, I just kind of jumped ahead. So going back to Churchill, he's still just a soldier in India. All right. Uh, so Churchill decides that he can't really side with the liberals because the Irish shouldn't be left to rule themselves. Uh. <laughs> so he instead begins supporting British conservatism. Okay. I like, this is a lot of politics here, but 
There, well, I mean, he's a politician right. later. Okay. There's going to be a lot of politics. I try, I try to dwindle it as much as I could. But okay. Sounds good. Yes. Uh, so he, he, he's now a conservative. He promoted some good things like secular non-denominational education. All right. Uh, but then also believed in some terrible things like uh, women shouldn't be able to vote. Ah, classic. <laughs> he called the suffragettes a ridiculous movement. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. He, he was kind of right, though. Uh, mark that (laughs) Uh, anyway back in India he joined the Malakand Malakand field force (laughs) to fight against rebels in northwestern India okay he was actually assigned as a journalist rather than a soldier and wrote several letters to different newspapers detailing the engagement huh he often described how both sides would slaughter each other's wounded, but of course left out any accounts of the British doing so and did they James well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because Churchill didn't say. <laughs> I didn't really look into the engagement either. Oh, yeah. But I'm guessing they did. Okay. I mean, that happens in all wars. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then he wrote the book, The Story of the Malakand, Malakand Field Force, and it got pretty positive reviews. Okay. Uh, he also wrote his only piece of fiction, a book called Savrola. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but after this campaign, Churchill wanted more. Mm. So he asked British military leader Herbert Kitchener if he could join the British war in the Sudan. Ah. Kitchener refused, saying that all Churchill wanted was publicity and medals. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Churchill went back home to England and used his contacts there to ensure his repositioning to Africa again as a military journalist. Ah. So he ended up in Egypt for a little bit, and then he, uh, he went with the lads to fight in the Sudan against the Sudanese leader Abdallah, Abdallahi Ibn Muhammad. Uh. Something like that. Abdallahi. 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 It's a sweet name. Whatever. Okay, yeah, it's a good name. <laughs> uh, so Churchill wrote a book called The River War in 1899 that detailed this conflict. Uh, anyway, after these little fun times, Churchill decided he wanted to pursue a career in politics, so he headed back to England and gave several addresses at conservative meetings. Ah. He also courted a girl named Pamela Plowden. <laughs> We're so immature. We're gonna make that joke. Uh, nothing. Pamela plowed in. I don't know what the fuck that means. Uh, who knows? So <laughs> Pamela fucking plowed in. Uh, yeah, got it. All right. Uh, nothing. Nothing ever came from this. Well, who knows? Uh, but they uh, did remain lifelong, lifelong friends. Aw. Then he decided to return to India. Why? Uh, to indulge in his love of the game of polo. Oh. For three months. What? <laughs> three months of polo? In India. What yeah. the fuck? Weird. Oh, uh, okay. Then he returned back to England to refocus on politics. Ah, uh, got and his polo out of his system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, for all of you conspiracy theorists, oh. it was about this time that Churchill became somewhat involved with the Rothschilds, so take that as you will. What? Who Who the fuck are those? Okay, well, they're a big banking family. Okay. And I think, allegedly, one of the nine families of the Illuminati or something <laughs> okay. like that. Oh, I kind of think I've... I've heard You've of that. You've probably before. heard of that. I've heard of it. I before. think they're involved with a bunch of Swiss banking or I something. I was just thinking of Thief too. There's this part oh. where you're like sneaking around and there's this guy complaining that he's he's a Rothschild and he should go to the party and that he wasn't invited or whatever. Hmm. But anyway, I don't know. Maybe it's Illuminati. I don't know. Okay, conspiracy theorists, check out Thief 2. Yeah. Probably the Illuminati in there somewhere. Yeah. Okay, so he's he he began talking with the Rothschilds, and he also became a Freemason. Okay. So there's that, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, then Churchill was selected as two conservative parliamentary candidates in Lancashire. Okay. Uh, as one of two. 
one of, wait. Oh, he was selected as two. He had, yeah, he's okay. one. Yeah, oh, anyway. What, okay. So, meanwhile, the second Boer War is about to break out in Africa between Britain and the Boer Republics. Okay. Uh, which are basically, the Boers are Dutch descendants. Okay. Uh, so, they're white. So, the Boer War, Wars are basically the British fighting the Dutch in Africa. Oh. While the Africans are just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah, fun stuff. Okay. So, always needing to be close to war, Churchill sailed to Africa as a journalist again and went straight towards the conflict. But on his way to the front, Churchill's train was derailed by Boer artillery and he was captured by the Boers. Oh no! He was then put in a POW camp in Pretoria. Oh. Which sounds very African. Did they play <laughs> polo there? <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay. Uh, a few months later, though, Churchill and two other inmates escaped the prison by climbing over the latrine wall. That seems like... That's why they don't have walls and latrines in prisons anymore. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Churchill. Thanks, Churchill. <laughs> so uh, he then stowed away on a freight train and then hid in a mine to avoid Boer soldiers, and uh, he made it all the way back to British territory. Wow. But it wasn't British territory. It was Portuguese oh. territory, uh. because this is Africa, and Europe has cut it all up. Yeah. <laughs> Ick. Yeah. Uh, then he sailed to South Africa, which was British, he rejoined the war effort and fought in a few campaigns. Okay. To his credit... Wait, so he actually fought? Yeah, he okay. did. He did fight well, here. just a journalist. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, to his credit, Churchill also wrote that the Boers should be treated with generosity and tolerance, and that peace should be the goal of everybody. Okay. Which... Uh, okay. Okay, fair, fair enough. enough. Got yep. it. Uh, during the siege of Ladysmith, Churchill himself and his cousin managed to capture 52 Boer soldiers. Oh, wow. Then, yeah, then he sailed back to England. So he's kind of a war hero okay, in, in a way. Okay, got it, got it. Uh, he later said about his involvement with the Boer Wars that, <laughs> quote, it was great fun galloping about. <laughs> okay. And now here's, uh, uh, here's where it gets iffy. Uh, uh, his only irritation was, and I'm not gonna, I don't know this, this noun that he uses. Yeah, I don't recognize that either. But it's, it's a word for Africans and it's not great. <laughs> it's okay. kind of like the N-word I've heard. Okay. So anyway, what Churchill said about the Boer Wars that was blank, that... Blank should be allowed to fire on white men, was his only concern. Oh. So basically he's mad that blacks can fire on whites. What? Yeah. Ugh. Uh, 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 well, okay. Yeah. Ugh. And we're not even close to being done with his story. Okay. Uh, um, is this the worst it gets? No. Oh. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so then Churchill returns home and again runs for the seat of Oldham in the 1900 election. And he wins. Surprise, surprise. Okay. Uh, he then went on a tour throughout Britain and America, raising a bunch of money for himself, and also published a two-volume biography of his father called Lord Randolph Churchill. Ah, uh, interesting. Uh, I don't want to read that. Okay. <laughs> two volumes. Yeah. Uh, so then he started spouting out his conservative beliefs, but then switched sides again and joined uh, the liberals because he didn't like how the conservatives handled tariff reform. So he just keeps splitting over tiny things. Yeah, so he was uh, liberal, and then he was conservative, and now he's liberal again. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so now Churchill is a liberal, and he does things like campaign for free trade. Uh, he helped stabilize South Africa after the Boer Wars by supporting the Transvaal <laughs> Constitution. Okay. Uh, and then... Uh, then he supported the idea of promoting responsible government authorities instead of rep 
representative authorities. Uh, which, okay. uh, anyway, then Churchill won the seat for Manchester Northwest and then was later promoted to the cabinet as president of the Board of Trade. Uh, All very interesting, I'm sure, but we gotta keep going. Yeah, because we're not at World War II yet, and if I know anything about Churchill, it's that he was involved in World War II. Yeah, yeah. with the little V with his fingers and a cigar. all that matters, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Mm. so... Uh, then Churchill did some things like opposing the British government to spend more money on making giant warships called dreadnoughts. Oh. Supported various liberal reforms and helped set up the first minimum wage in Britain. So that's good. So doing very liberal things. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he also set up labor exchanges to help unemployed people find work. Oh. And, oh, um, he was also a huge supporter of eugenics. What? And wanted to sterilize what were called, quote, feeble-minded people. Oh. Yeah. Okay, well... I might as well make a note about this. Back then, lots of people were supportive of eugenics. I That's mean, true. It was just Absolutely. a thing of the day. I mean, he's not hes not that bad. He's not an outsider yet. <laughs> he's, yeah. Uh, uh, he's, uh, that's kind of gross. All right. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, to make it more gross, oh, uh, no. he once wrote that the mentally handicapped, quote, constitute a national and race danger, Eef. which is impossible to exaggerate. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, mm. so not great. Uh, he also helped pass the People's Budget, which taxed the rich more so new social welfare, welfare programs could be enacted. Okay, so there's like some good mixing with the bad here. I, I guess. I guess. I mean, it depends. It depends how, what your views right, are. Your po- political views are, but like, there's stuff that's like clearly along you know, with whatever political party yeah. he's a part of then. And then there's, like, these kind of weird things. Yeah. But at least he's being honest to the Liberal Party. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so then in 1910, uh, Churchill was promoted to Home sec- Secretary, where he did some not-so-liberal things. Ah. Like, say, that women shouldn't be able to vote. Okay. And perhaps sent soldiers to quell strikers during the Tony Pandy riot. Although a lot of people said he actually stopped the soldiers from being deployed. It's kind of controversial. Wait, was that in Ireland? I think it's in Wales. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he also received criticism when he visited the siege of Sydney Street in London, where two Latvian anarchists were on a showdown with the London police, and they were wanted for murder. Ah. Uh, there's debate here as to whether or not Churchill took command of the police situation. Uh-oh. <laughs> but a lot of historians think that he did, like, just walk in and take command of the police. <laughs> I'm in charge! <laughs> Who are you? I'm in charge! Wow. Uh, then he ordered the building where the two Latvians were hiding to be burnt down. What? <laughs> With them in it? Yeah. Oh, God. Well, and Churchill said, quote, I thought it better to let the house burn down rather than spend good British lives in rescuing those ferocious rascals. Okay, is this like a, is this like a, a, a vignette of like how he's going to act from now on? Like, just brutal? Um, it's... <laughs> I don't know. It's really complicated because he is a hero in a lot of ways. Okay. But he also believed a bunch of terrible things and did some terrible things. Okay. So it's really controversial. All right. Anyway, we got to keep moving on. Mm. Uh, so Churchill resigned from the government in 1915 and returned to join the army once again because do you know what time it is, Aaron? Oh! Do you? No. It's time for World War One. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Man, these world wars keep coming up. They just our keep episodes. popping up. Like, 
And I was just like carrying along doing politics. And oh shit, it's World War One again. Oh god, yeah, get out the machine guns. Out of the trenches. <laughs> god damn it. Oh, anyway, uh, so he's in World War One now. Okay. Uh, and he commanded a battalion for a bit during the war, and then was appointed as lieutenant colonel and commanded a bunch of lads. 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 <laughs> uh, in letters with his wife at this point. Oh yeah, he was married by now. Oh okay. <laughs> uh, he says that his mission in the army was to rebuild public opinion of him at the unfortunate cost of possibly being killed. Wait, so people didn't like him? Right. Yeah, yeah. So earlier, like, with the whole thing in London, where he took control of the police. Oh, yeah. And he was kind of linked with a few crushing of strikes. He kind of lost a lot of public uh, a favor. I see. So now he's in the war. So he's pulling a Joe McCarthy here. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tail Gunner Churchill. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so during this time, Churchill is also First Lord of the Admiralty, which he was appointed to in 1911, and started preaching all about modernizing war machines, particularly the airplane. Mm. Uh, in fact, he liked airplanes so much that he took flying lessons himself. Cool. Uh, he also believed that coal should be replaced with oil in the war efforts because most warships were still being run on coal at this point. Huh. Yeah, so you can kind of see where this is going with World War II. Like, he's on top of weaponry. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, though, this whole coal oil thing is a big chapter in Churchill's life. Okay. He later helped support the Anglo-Persian oil company basically take over all the oil in Iran and fuck over the Iranian people oh. with the help of the American CIA, of course. Uh, of course, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people think this is why Iran is such a problem today, because the UK and USA fucked over the Iranian people in the 50s by stealing their oil and hindering democratic processes in Iran to ensure that a Western-friendly dictator would stay in power. Oh, that's so... Oh, I've yeah. heard that before. Uh, Churchill called Iran, quote, a prize from fairyland beyond our wildest dreams yeah. because all of all its oil. But this is a topic for another time. Okay, I'm sorry, but we have gone... We In 2017, it's almost 2018 now. Well, shit, it's gonna be 2018. It's real soon. Yeah. And um, by the... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was gonna say, like, to call another country a prize? Yeah. <laughs> we don't talk yeah. like that anymore. Okay. Oh, imagine if we did that with Afghanistan. Oh, Jesus, oh. it's a prize it's from Fairyland. Yeah. Oh, God. Not good. Nope, nope. Okay, so uh, he's still doing the whole World War One thing. Yep. Yeah. And he's rather enjoying it. Oh, good. Uh, in fact, in a letter to his friend, Churchill said about World War One. quote, I think a curse should rest on me because I love this war. <laughs> I know it's smashing and shattering the lives of thousands every moment, and yet I can't help it. I enjoy every second of it. Well, at least he's being honest, for God's I, sake. I, guess. I mean, he's right. It is destroying thousands of lives a day. It is. And, like, yeah. I mean. But to enjoy it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, anyway, Churchill also helped develop develop the British tank with funds from the Navy. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, and in February 1915, he appointed the he was appointed to the Land Ships Committee, which oversaw the design and production of the first British tanks. They called them land ships? I That's guess so, awesome. yeah. <laughs> uh, but Churchill's military career in World War I wasn't all flowers and tanks. He was one of the military engineers of the disastrous Gallipoli landings in the Dardanelles, which ended with over 300,000 French and British casualties and an Ottoman victory. Yeah, I saw the movie. Yep. Uh, the only thing, well, 
it, the event itself is almost as tragic as Mel Gibson's performance. It's <laughs> <laughs> terrible. Well, but so true. Okay, the, the movie itself is not good. Don't watch oh, it. Oh, really? Okay. Well, I mean, it's won awards. People are going to shit all over me for saying that, but I hated that movie. Oh, okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> now, to, to Churchill's credit, he did take most of the blame for the failure of Gallipoli. Okay. So, good for him. Uh, he then resigned from the government in 1915 and worked solely as a soldier, fighting on the Western Front as a lieutenant, lieutenant colonel. He often made forays into no man's land during and in between fights. Wow. Uh, in, <laughs> in March 1916, Churchill was getting restless from the war, so he returned to England where he started involving himself with politics again. Okay. Good stuff. Uh, in July of 1917, he was appointed Minister of Munitions, and then in January of 1919, he was made Secretary of State for War and Secretary of State for Air. Wow. Yeah. Big upgrade. I guess so. Uh, so during this time, and after World War One was over, Churchill supported reducing funds to the British military. Huh. Which is odd. That is odd, because post-war, everyone, you know, well, not everyone, but at least most people in leadership thought of it as, like, peace for a little while. Right. It was, you know... Well, and Germany was pretty much completely disarmed. They only had a small militia. That's true. So... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. It does, it's, but it's just funny because later on, Churchill is all about rebuilding the military. Huh. We'll get to that. Huh. Uh, so during the Irish War of Independence, Churchill became the Secretary of State for the colonies and, despite his dislike for the Irish, actually did help in passing and signing the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921, which established the Irish Free State. Although he did make sure that uh, he made sure to ensure that the British could keep a few navy bases on the island for a while. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Mm. In 1919, Churchill supported using tear gas on Kurdish tribesmen who were rebelling Whoa. against British rule in Iraq. Whoa! Yeah, how about that shift? Okay, so there you go. There's a little bit of background on the Middle East. Churchill was tear gassing Kurdish tribesmen. Yeah. That's fun. And you'd think after seeing gas in World War One, he would have had enough of it, but no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, Churchill said, "Quote." I am strongly in favor of using poisoned gas against the uncivilized tribes. What? It would spread a lively terror. Uh, oh, God. Not great. That doesn't sound good at all. No. Um, I bet they didn't show this in the movie. <laughs> no, I bet they didn't have him well, say this in the movie. Yeah. Now, thankfully, they they didn't use poison gas, uh, although some conspiracy theorists claim that they did. Okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, what did happen was that the British, under Churchill's command, just bombed the bejesus <laughs> out of the area with bombers. Oh, God. Uh, lots of civilians were killed in the process of subduing the insurgents. Uh, Sound familiar? Uh, America? Uh, <laughs> we're going to get killed by the CIA we for are. this shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right. yeah. That's okay, though. Well. <laughs> anyway, one British soldier wrote of the British bombings in Iraq with the quote, 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 quote. Quote, quote, quote. Uh, the <laughs> Arab and Kurd now know what real bombing means. Within 45 minutes, a full-sized village can be practically wiped out, and a third of its inhabitants killed or injured by four or five minutes... Four or five machines, machines. <laughs> which offer them no real target, no opportunity for glory as warriors, no effective means of escape. Ah! Uh, uh, so, yeah... Uh, Iraqi, Kurds, and Arabs don't have much love for Churchill. Yeah, because he's bombing the shit out of their villages. Yeah, and it what? killed a ton of civilians. Wait, so too. why is he doing this anyway? They were rebelling against British rule. Okay. British rule all over the Middle East oh, at this time. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. didn't know that. 
Uh, then for the next years, he, he didn't do so hot in politics and lost a few times, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but then in 1924, the Labour government took office in Britain and lots of people were scared that the Constitution would be violated. Ah, scandal! Yeah. <laughs> uh, Churchill did not like socialism and also feared that the socialists would violate the British Constitution. So he ran in the Westminster Abbey by election in 1924, aged 49, and ran under the title constitutionalist uh but he lost okay because is that because it's not a real party or? yeah exactly okay. <laughs> um uh, he started talking about setting up a constitutionalist party but this didn't really work because the few other constitutionalists in england all had different ideas and all of them acted and voted differently and so the party never took off ah and it kind of sounds like the american libertarian yeah party. <laughs> yeah where you're kind of like ah i get you're probably right but you know what it doesn't matter None of you there's agree. not enough of you and you're all saying different shit yeah. For the most part. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so then Churchill rejoined the Conservative Party and supported Britain's return to the gold standard, which kind of ended in disaster. Oh, fun. Yeah. Uh, even though it actually had a lot of popular support, oh. oddly enough. Uh, uh, well, you know, there are disasters that have lots of popular support. That's, that's true. Mm -hmm. yeah. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Everybody thought I was going to say something else. <laughs> no, that's, but that's as bad as it comes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, so Churchill would later state that this was the greatest disaster of his life, was, okay. going, was voting for the gold standard. Uh, the coal industry was particularly hit by the return to the gold standard and would help lead to the general strike of 1926. Churchill believed that tanks and machine guns should be used to keep the strikers in order. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, like, I took a moment there to yawn. I thought I missed... So it's a strike? It's a strike. It's a coal industry And he wants strike. to shoot them with tanks and machine well, guns? Well, maybe not shoot them, but, you know, keep them in order. Oh. Because what's going to stop a strike is, you know, seeing three tanks in the street or whatever. It might work. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, this made the public kind of view him as a war hawk. Uh, so Churchill decided to kind of leave the political scene for a little while and thus began what he called his wilderness years. Okay. You know what? I think we're going to have to stop, take a quick break. I think We've so been too. going for quite a while on Churchill. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we'll just leave everyone off. What are the wilderness years? Wait and find out. And we are back to We Talk About Dead People. And when we left off, we were talking about Churchill's life before his wilderness years? Hold on, I'm not hearing... I'm not hearing anything. Uh, <clears throat> where were we? We left off uh, with Churchill about to enter his wilderness years. Yes. So, tell us about his wilderness years, James. Fine, I will. Okay. Okay, so during these wilderness years, Churchill kind of kept to himself, and uh, he wrote several works, including Marlborough, His Life and Times, okay. which was a biography of his ancestor, John Churchill. Okay. Uh, he also wrote many newspaper articles and speeches, and was one of the best-paid writers of the time. Ah. He also continued to write about politics and supported things like ending universal suffrage uh, and getting rid of Gandhi. What? Yep. Gandhi? Uh, that's right, boys and girls. Churchill really, really hated Gandhi uh, and completely opposed the Indian independence movement in the 1920s and 30s. Wow. Yeah. Wow. In 1920, Churchill proclaimed that Gandhi should be bound hand and foot and crushed with an elephant ridden by the viceroy. What? <laughs> what? Wait, what? He... 
Yeah. What? Yeah, that's what he said. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. Crushed by an elephant? Yeah. Oh. Uh, later, when Gandhi and millions of other Indians went on a hunger strike, Churchill proclaimed that it would be better for everybody if Gandhi just hurried up and starved to death. Oh, God. <laughs> Churchill, stop it! Yeah. Uh, now, a lot of British political leaders, both liberal and conservative, supported the idea of giving India back their own country. Oh, good. But Churchill would not hear of it. What? At a meeting at the West Essex Conservative Association, Churchill proclaimed, quote, It is alarming and also nauseating to see Mr. Gandhi, a seditious middle temple lawyer, now posing as a fakir, 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 a fakir, fakir. Uh, <laughs> of a type well known in the East, striding half naked up the steps of the vice regal palace to parlay on equal terms with the representative of the king emperor. Ah, okay, so he's picking on the guy's appearance now. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Uh, meanwhile, Churchill started losing favor with the conservative party because, well, uh, it seems that Churchill claimed two guys named Samuel Horse and Lord Derby had breached some sort of parliamentary privilege, even though they hadn't. Uh, there was a whole investigation because Churchill claimed they did. Anyway, look into this yourself, but uh, the point is Churchill is kind of unpopular even among conservatives at this man, point. Man, his whole career is like a roller coaster. People don't like him. No. Yeah. Uh. Okay, so now we're finally getting closer to World War II and what Churchill is best known for. Woo! So in the early 1930s, as Germany began to start arming itself again, Churchill strongly opposed this. Uh, interesting. Uh, he also support supported the idea that Britain should remain allied to France and also continue to build up her military in order to match Germany. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Even though a few years earlier he was like, yeah, we should... We shouldn't spend as much on the military. Times are a-changing. I guess so. Mm. So in 1932, Churchill accepted the presidency of the new Commonwealth Society, which was a society that promoted, quote, overwhelming forces to support public international law okay. and international peace. Uh-oh. Uh, it was also about this time that communism was growing throughout the world, and Churchill started to really speak out against communism. Okay. Uh, but, unfortunately, uh, Churchill blamed the rise of the Bolsheviks on a vast Jewish conspiracy. Oh, come on. Here we are again. Here we are again. Fuck. We've been been down this fucking road before. Yeah. Uh, uh, I didn't know this about him. Yeah, I mm. didn't like the Jews. Well, okay. some of the Jews. We'll get to that in a oh, minute. Oh, God. So Churchill said, quote, This movement among Jews is not new, but a worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development, oh. not the TV show, oh, okay. uh, of an envious mal mal malevolence, I always <laughs> have trouble with that word, and impossible equality. Uh, that's kind of, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Mm, nope. So it turns out Churchill didn't really like the Jews. Okay. Well, let me specify here. He didn't like the bad Jews. Oh, okay. So he didn't yeah. like the bad Jews. Yes. Got it. Okay. Uh, he blamed these bad Jews for supporting communism, uh, and they had also he also saw them as, quote, allowed to prey upon the temporary prostration of the German people, e. which sounds a little Hitlerish. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, he was a huge supporter of good Jews. Uh, 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 okay. Okay. 
And these good Jews were the ones who wanted to set up a new Israel with the Zionist movement, and he strongly supported creating a new Jewish-Israeli state. Okay. Uh, in fact, in 2012, a statue of Churchill was erected in Jerusalem to honor Churchill's fight for Zionism. Oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Of course, this meant, in turn, that Churchill did not really like the Palestinian Arabs. Oh, okay. Uh, he said of these Palestinians that they were a people of, quote, lower manifestation. The fuck does that mean? Uh, I don't know. He uh, believed in evolutionary hierarchy. Ah, right. Yes. Of course. Eugenics. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, and he also said, quote, I do not agree that the dog in a manger has the final right to the manger. Oh. Referring to the Arabs oh. and Bethlehem or something. Oh. Oh. I don't know. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, and the idea of ethnic hierarchy, like I said, was always a part of Churchill's beliefs. Okay, when they won't show that in the movie. No. <laughs> and it just gets worse. Uh, when talking about the American Native Americans and Australian Aboriginals, Churchill later said, quote, I do not admit that a wrong has been done to these people by the fact that a stronger race, a higher grade oh. race, a more worldly wise race, to put it that way, has come in and taken their place. Uh, oh, uh. So he's kind of a racist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, God damn it, Churchill. Yeah, and we were never taught this. No. Uh. Uh, anyway, as fascism continued to rise in Europe in the 30s, Churchill was much more scared about communism. Got it. When the Japanese invaded Manchuria, Churchill warned the League of Nations that they should not stop the Japanese and said, quote, I hope we shall try in England to understand the position of Japan, an ancient state. On the one side, they have the dark menace of Soviet Russia. On the other side, the chaos of China. Four or five provinces of which are being tortured under communist rule. Uh, which is kind of ironic. Because uh, okay. this is in the 30s. Right. And Britain and Japan are going to be fighting each other in World War II just a few years yeah. later. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh. He also favored Franco's army in the Spanish Civil War because Franco was fighting the communists. Ah! Even though Hitler and the Nazis were supporting and giving weapons to Franco. Okay. So, Again, kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all the way up until 1937, two years before World War II, Churchill absolutely praised Mussolini and the Italian fascists. <laughs> oh, okay. Give uh, me an example. Uh, so, in 1933, Churchill called Mussolini a, quote, Roman genius. <laughs> Okay. The greatest lawgiver among men. Have you seen this man, Churchill? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and also, quote, If I were Italian, I am sure I would have been with you entirely from the beginning. What a man, Mussolini. I have lost my heart. Uh Fascism has rendered a service to the entire world. What the shit? And this is in the 30s. This is the... Th wow. He's yeah. gonna eat those words. Yep. Oh. So, however, however, at home, uh, Churchill maintained that British that the British should continue to be democratic and not become fascist, and told the House of Commons in 1937 that, quote, I will not pretend that if I had to choose between communism and Nazism, I would choose communism. Oh, that's... Mm. So he hates Nazism, okay. which is... Okay, yeah. all right. <laughs> Uh, anyway, in 1935, Churchill wrote an essay called, quote, Hitler and His Choice. Okay. In which he said Hitler might go down as a great man in history if he chose to do so. Okay. Okay. Uh, meanwhile, Churchill began to hold to the political beliefs that Britain should greatly bolster up her military might, strengthen her empire, and be more involved with the League of Nations. Okay. I guess... Um, Churchill. Yeah. All right. So, in 1936, when Germany reoccupied the Rhineland, Britain was split on how to treat the Germans. Some didn't care, while some wanted to stop trading with Germany. Uh, Churchill tried to get the post of Minister for Coordination of Defense, but somebody else got it. Ah! 
Uh, so Churchill just continued to fight for rearmament and government takeover of 25 to 30% of British industry for war efforts. Oh, okay, so we're ramping things up. Yep. Mm. Uh, so overall, Churchill was disgusted that, that the British government couldn't make up its mind on how to treat Germany and Italy. Okay. Uh, Churchill then lost a lot of governmental support when he tried to buy more time for King Edward VIII to think about abdication. Okay. Again, it's really complicated, yeah. but the point is that Churchill isn't very popular. Again. Okay, so Roller Coaster Man yeah. is back at it again. All right. Uh, so Churchill was kind of ostracized from the British political circle, but continued to speak all for faster rearmament of the British military, and slowly gathered a rather small following of anti-Chamberlain people. Now, who was Chamberlain? Well, I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Yep. Uh, so Churchill was completely against Neville Chamberlain's appeasement policy toward Hitler. Okay, oh, I'll get to it right now. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so Neville Chamberlain is the kind of infamous prime minister of England who was like, peace in our time, trying to appease... Uh, Hitler by giving him ah, land. Ah, got, got it, got it, got it. Didn't work. Nope. <laughs> Did not work. Yeah. Okay. So, on September 3rd, 1939, two days after Germany invaded Poland, Britain declared war on Hitler, and Churchill was appointed as First Lord of the Admiralty and was a member of Chamberlain's War Cabinet because of this. Uh, and then nothing really happened because Chamberlain and most of his cabinet didn't want to outright act against Hitler, and this is known as the Phony War. Oh! Nothing really happened between Britain and uh, Germany at this time. Okay, so everyone's like, real scared and they're like okay we'll just give him what he wants like kind of, hope he doesn't yeah. kill us okay yeah. that's We're, fun we've declared war on him but we don't want to fight yeah but however as germany just rolled into belgium and the netherlands and denmark and norway and poland and such it became increasingly clear that this was actually a threat okay a little uh, too late yeah, yeah a little bit okay <laughs> Uh, and Britain as a whole began to lose its confidence in Chamberlain. So Chamberlain, King George VI, and a few other important political guys got together and figured that Churchill would be the best man for prime minister. So with Chamberlain's re resignation in May of 1940, Churchill became Britain's new prime minister. His first act was to write Chamberlain to thank him for his support. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, okay, so now we're into, like, classic Churchill, right? Yes. This so, is what everyone knows. This about. is what the movie's about. Like, yes. we don't talk about his, his his young life or any of the racism or shit. This, yeah. is, this is it. This is all we know about Churchill. Yes. Okay. So now, interestingly, not many of the British politicians liked Churchill, and he would almost certainly never have won an election to become prime minister because even most conservatives didn't. Right, really he like wasn't him. popular at all. So yeah. he kind of what had to just was he wait was he appointed? He was appointed. Oh, prime he was minister. appointed. Now that must have made a lot of people really pissed off. Yeah. So what what the parties had done in Britain was to decide to make a national government. I don't know what that means, but that's what it's called. Okay. Uh, because of the growing threat of Nazism, so Churchill was just appointed, and that was that. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, uh, good for Churchill. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So much for democracy, uh, whatever. Uh, many people were surprised by this, but most uh, most of the British supported Churchill because he was the right man for the time. And although they didn't really like him as a person, he had kind of been speaking out against Nazism for a while now. And so they gave him the support he needed. So Britain started to prepare for war. Now, I have a quick question. Yes. So he's speaking against Nazism, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. But he's still a fan of Mussolini? Well, not at this point. Uh, okay. He's kind of stopped around 1937. Okay, so he changed his mind about Mussolini, too? Probably as soon as Mussolini and Hitler got cozy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but also, Churchill still really hates communism. Okay. And that will come in later. Okay. So, on June 18th, Churchill predicted to the House of Commons that, quote, I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Ah. 
Uh, he then appointed various friends and supporters to different government positions and made himself the Minister of Defense in order to fuel the British war machine. That's kind of funny. I wonder how that looks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now the Minister of Defense. Uh, and the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister. Yes. I, you didn't vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> he was also 65 years old at this time. Oh my god. But the war seems to have given him newfound energy. Oh. Uh, and this energy really helped inspire the British people. His first speech as Prime Minister was his famous speech in which he stated, quote, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Ah. It doesn't sound great, but it rallied the British people, and the House of Commons, which had recently despised Churchill, now cheered him on. Good, I guess. Yeah. Well, we gotta <laughs> stop Hitler. <laughs> yeah, we, but yeah, kind of good. Yeah. got a little Hitler problem, you know. <laughs> uh, so just before the Battle of Britain began, Churchill gave his famous speech in which he proclaimed, We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. Wait, wait, wait. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Okay, thank you. Okay. Yeah, you're welcome. I can't do that. It's not very good, but there it is. It's better than mine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, he then gave another famous speech in which he said... <gasps> Let us therefore brace ourselves <laughs> to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth That's what thousands of yards men will say, this was their finest hour. Yes. <laughs> so I did a dual impression there. Uh, so I did uh, like little little Churchill and oh, old Churchill. Right? Okay, cool. All right, yeah. Remember everybody, this is the guy who liked eugenics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now I have to say really quick, I love controversy. Me too. Good. Uh, and there's some controversy about Churchill's speech about fighting on the landing grounds, beaches, etc. Well, wait, that's his famous speech, though. I, I mean, know. that's that's Churchill's speech. Yeah. So what are you saying? Well, some people think he stole it from an Irish rebel named Robert Emmett. What? Who spoke to his countrymen decades earlier. Now, a lot of historians don't believe this at all, but some do. Okay. And uh, this is this speech is pretty long, this Irish guy's speech. Okay. But he basically says, Were the French to come as invaders or enemies, uninvited by the wishes of the people, I should oppose them to the utmost of my strength. Yes, my countrymen. I should advise you to meet them on the beach with a sword in one hand and a torch in the other. Huh. I would meet them with all the destructive fury of war, and I would animate my countrymen to immolate them in their boats, before they had contaminated the soil of my country. If they succeeded in landing, and if forced to retire before superior, dis superior discipline, I would dispute every inch of ground, raise every house, burn every blade of grass, the last spot on which the hope of freedom should desert me. There would I hold, and the last of liberty should be my grave. Ah! That, so, it kind of sounds kinda kinda a little bit. I don't know. A little bit. Yeah. yeah, I just wanted to throw it in there. Oh, all right. Uh, anyway, so the war is underway, blah, 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 and Churchill is continuing to rally the British people and fuel the war effort. Mm. Churchill was also a very close friend with President Roosevelt of the United States and maintained good relations with the USA during the early years of the war. Okay. Uh, the two men sent an estimated 1,700 letters to each other in the years of 1939 uh, and to the end of the war. So they were pretty chummy, is that what you're telling me? Yeah, they mm. were very, yeah. Uh, they also met together 11 times. Wow. When Roosevelt was re-elected in 1940, he began sending all sorts of armaments and supplies to Britain, greatly helping the British war effort, and this was in large due to Churchill's actions. Okay. The supplies sent from America were basically given freely to the British Empire. Mm -hmm. FDR told Congress that Britain would repay America by protecting her. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Oh, uh, but after Pearl Harbor ah, was attacked, yeah. uh, Churchill famously exclaimed, We have won the war! What? 
<laughs> because now America's going to be involved. Yep. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's for all you American patriots. Out yeah. There. <laughs> uh, so during the war, Churchill and Roosevelt would continue to meet to talk about war efforts and also talk about what, what should happen after the war, namely rebuilding Germany instead of punishing the country uh, and for enacting new European boundaries. Yeah. So, so good things, yeah, I think. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but after FDR died and President Truman took his place, Churchill immediately gave his support and friendship to Truman and declared that Truman was, quote, the type of leader the world needs when it needs him most. Ah, okay. So, good things. All right. But can we talk about Russia? Yes. I've been dying to talk we about Russia. We need to talk about Russia. Uh, so, let's talk about Russia, the forgotten ally of World War II. Ah, yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. And I gotta say here, like... For all... We're both Americans. Okay, yes. We're both patriots. Kind of, yeah. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, America's done a lot of wrong. Yeah. But anyway, what I can't stand is when uh, Americans say that World War II was won when we landed at D-Day. Ah, yes. I've heard that too. Yes. Uh, all my life, by everyone. I know. So, okay. What's fair is to say that... If it wasn't for America, you know, the whole Pacific Front might have ended a lot right, differently. Right, right. Because America really did take on the bulk of Japanese power. Right. But in in the European Front, the war had already been raging for several years, and the Russians took the vast majority of the brunt of the German war machine. Yeah. And they were the ones who really won the, the European Front. Yeah. And I am no fan of communism here. Okay? No, no, no. But, um, but like... I'm just going to say, I yeah. have seen so many... I mean, everybody's seen this shit, but <laughs> it's going to... It pisses me off. Just the amount of jacking off about D-Day that goes on. Yeah. I mean, it was a... I get it. It was huge. But was. for God's sake, put it in perspective. I mean, you got this new Call of Duty game coming oh, out or ca yeah. that came out. It was like all American all the time. I'm like, dude, there have been wars on fronts you've never even touched yeah. with countries you don't even talk about. <laughs> like... Yeah. Well, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, yeah. There's so much more to World War II than just D-Day, but exactly. I guess that's that's what we get stuck in our heads. When well, we're being and, and the Normandy invasion was huge, yeah. but it was not the turning point in the European theater. It, it was, was more like the final nail in the coffin. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But when D-Day happened, I mean, Italy had already been pretty much defeated. Mm -hmm. uh, we had troops in Italy, and the Russians were already pushing back through Poland and even into Germany a little bit while D-Day was happening. Yeah. So, okay. Give Russia credit. <laughs> yeah, that's what we're saying. Give Russia some credit. Yes. All right. Uh, now, speaking of Russia, Churchill hated communism. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember that whole the Jews are responsible for communism thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. No. Uh, but Churchill hated Hitler and Nazism more. Uh, he made a great statement that, <laughs> quote, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least make a favorable reference to the devil in the House of Commons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so classic example of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right, okay. Uh, so Churchill started sending munitions and tanks to the Soviet Union in order to help their war effort. What didn't help is that the Polish government, which was now repositioned in England uh, after the Germans, you know, rolled through them. So the Polish, you know, they, they kind of hated Stalin and Russia. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, so Churchill had a pretty difficult time working between these two to make some sort of agreement for end-of-the-war borders. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> His solution was a proposal that would relocate tons of people to fit inside the borders that would be made. Unfortunately, those the Soviet Union would dominate all of Eastern Europe after the war, and Churchill would become very sad about this later on in his life. Oh, boo! -hoo. He did have 
It seems like he did have a soft spot in his heart for the Polish. Yeah, I think he did. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, anyway, back to World War II. As Russia started to push back against the Nazis, Churchill realized that the Allies needed to work out an agreement as to which Allied country would run what after the war had ended. Okay. So Churchill, FDR, and Stalin met famously at the Tehran Conference, the Yalta Conference, and the Potsdam Conference, where the three men talked about carving up Europe and how the war should be handled afterwards. Ah, you know, that's so interesting that... Like, World War One was basically the result of countries being carved up, and the Boer War and <laughs> right, all the rest was yeah. just like, oh, let's see who's going to control what when all this shit's over. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, like, this I can't really be against, because all of Europe had changed. Right, like, right. The whole mainland was now just German-occupied. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, now, interestingly, Churchill secretly thought about attacking the Soviet Union after the war would finish because he really hated communism. Really? Yeah, he actually made a plan for it, and it was called Operation Unthinkable. Oh. Uh, and it would essentially be a great Allied surprise attack against Russia. Uh, okay. However, Britain's chief of the army criticized Churchill for, quote, longing for another war. Yeah, and yeah. Jesus. <laughs> and the U.S. told Churchill that if he did this, the U.S. would have no part in it. Uh, so, th so thankfully that didn't happen. Especially since they started, I mean, they were already on the verge of developing nuclear weapons. Exactly. And that could have, I mean, that's what it would have happened. World War Three. What would have happened. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Churchill, bad plan. Bad plan, Churchill. Mm -mm. Yeah. No, sir. So we've covered a, a little bit of dip diplomacy a bit. Let's talk about the bombing of Dresden. Oh, Jesus. Let's talk about the bombing of Dresden. Yeah. Uh, between February 13 and 15, uh, 1945, British and U.S. bombers flattened the German city of Dresden. Now, this action is super controversial. Yes, yes it is. <laughs> uh, so Dresden wasn't too military important and was much more of a cultural center. It was okay. also full of about 200,000 refugees and wounded Germans. About 25,000 people were killed by the bombs and many people cite this bombing as an allied war crime. Yeah, yeah, because uh, they used white phosphorus from yeah. what I understand, which I literally so. melts people. Yeah. And they have a word for it. I don't remember what it is, but it's basically like if you find a building that somehow survived, hmm. there would be pools of human goo. Oh my and god. The floor. Yeah. Pretty oh. fucked up. Yeah. Uh, most people also don't talk about uh, the fact that white phosphorus was used in D-Day, roasted people inside their bunkers. Right. It would just seep <laughs> through the walls. Jeez. Yeah. But uh, that happened. <laughs> yeah. So how many people? Well, 25,000 people died. Um, oh, God. And the war was also nearing an end. So many people saw this bombing run as completely unnecessary and kind of a last fuck you to the Third Reich. I see. Uh, Churchill did say that the Allies should rethink bombing German residential centers as the war continued to come closer to an end. But in the end, responsibility of the act lies with Churchill. Mm. But of course, some historians have defended the act by saying that, look, all sides of the war bombed civilians and cities. So war is complicated. Yeah, bottom line, war is complicated. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, speaking of war being complicated, let's talk about India. Oh, yeah. I'm now, more. Yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. I know I've been shitting on Churchill quite a bit, mm -hmm. uh, but here's the thing. I was only ever told the heroic things about Churchill, and I'm positive that most British and American people view this guy that way. And it's not really truthful. No, it's more symbolic or yeah. heroic and not really realistic, is it? Now, I want to say, like, he did a lot of great things, and he kind of was really the leader that England needed in World War II. Yeah. But everybody knows that. Yeah. So I didn't focus as much on it, uh, j just to highlight other things that nobody really knows about. Right, right. So anyway, we, we need to take the good with the bad. Got it. Nobody is only good. That's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so here's another terrible thing that Churchill was kind of a big part of. Oh, God. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier that Churchill hated Gandhi and was totally against giving India their independence. Well, there's a lot more to that. Uh-oh. During World War II in 1943, India underwent a terrible famine that killed between 3 and 4 million people. Wow, holy shit. Yeah. Uh, the reasons for this famine is kind of complicated, but Japan's takeover of Burma had an impact as well as the British War Cabinet ordering a great stockpile of food to be made in order to feed liberated Europe after the war, meaning that food would be redirected away from India. Oh. Yeah, uh, but Churchill seems to have blamed the Indians themselves. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> by saying it was their own fault because they breed like rabbits. Oh God! Uh, he also said, "quote I hate Indians. They are a beastly people with a beastly religion." Oh God! Uh, and also, when told of the famine, Churchill responded, "Then why hasn't Gandhi died yet?" Oh, <laughs> tasteless. I know. Oh. So now this whole thing is, of course, very controversial. Of course it is. Defenders of Churchill claim that this was wartime, so shit happens. Right. But it's clear that Churchill hated Indians. And what's odd is that India actually had a great harvest and produced a ton of food that year, uh, much of which was sent to England to be eaten by the English, or to the Middle East, where it wasn't even really needed as much. Huh. Further, Canada offered to send 10,000 tons of rice, and the U.S. offered to send 100,000 pounds of rice to India to save the people, but Churchill told them not to, because the war made it just too dangerous. Uh, Which, like, let them try anyway. Yeah, try it, for God's yeah. sake. Churchill. Anyway. Mm. Uh, in 1940, uh, India began to break apart with violence between Muslims and Hindus. Okay. Churchill said that he hoped this conflict would be bitter and bloody. Jesus, he really doesn't like India. No. Oh my God. Okay. Uh, anyway, back to World War II. Spoiler alert, the Allies won. <laughs> okay. Uh, and Britain celebrated by immediately fighting with France in the Middle East, which I had no idea about. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, this became known as the Levant Crisis, in which the French and British argued about controlling lands that didn't belong to them. Ah, classic. Yeah. A bunch of Syrians were killed during this thing, and the French thought Churchill was solely interested in the oil of the Middle East. French General de Gaulle said of Churchill's ultimatum that, quote, the whole thing stank of oil. Uh, uh, okay. We haven't heard that before. No. (laughs) Okay, so now we're back to the end of World War II and Britain after the war, and now we're getting close to the 1945 election. Uh, This whole process is complicated, but I'm so tired of fucking talking. So basically, (laughs) Churchill loses the election and resigns as prime minister. Okay. Uh, The biggest attribute to him losing was basically that people were keen on post post-war rebuilding and it would be kind of odd to have the guy who led you through the war to be the guy who would rebuild. That's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Churchill was not done with politics. Fuck. Oh no. No. Uh, <laughs> More <laughs> politics. Yeah. God damn it. Okay. So he would serve as the leader of the opposition which sounds a lot cooler than what it actually is. Okay. Uh, basically this person leads the biggest party that's not in control of the government at the time. So during this time Churchill continues to travel the world and be involved with politics. In 1946 he played poker with President Truman and he lost a lot of money. <laughs> what? <laughs> Wait, is that a are you is that a metaphor or did he actually play poker? He actually played poker oh, with what? Truman and he lost money. <laughs> got his ass beat. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> then of course, in the same year, he gave his famous Iron Curtain speech in which he talked about Soviet Eastern Europe. Okay. He also suggested that the US preemptively strike the USSR by dropping an atomic bomb on Moscow. Uh, well, that would have ended great. Yeah. It? Oh my god. Uh, thankfully, this did not happen. He also wait, said, wait, wait. So Churchill, I get the sense that he was like a war hawk or something like that. Mm, yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Just make. Yeah. Just making sure. It reminds me of General MacArthur during the Korean War, where MacArthur was like, you know, we could win this if we just nuked China oh a bunch my of God. times. 
It's like, no, no, you've missed the point. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> uh, anyway, he also did. So- he also said something that was actually pretty cool, uh, which I mentioned earlier about, you know, how he thought of, about uh, Poland. So he said, quote, None of the Polish troops, and I must say this, who fought with us on a score of battlefields, who poured out their blood in the common cause, are not to be allowed to march in the victory parade. The fate of Poland seems to be unending tragedy, and we, mu- and we who went to war all ill-prepared on her behalf watch with sorrow the strange outcome of our endeavors. Oh. Which is sad, because Poland yeah. did get totally fucked in World yeah. War II, <laughs> well, and yeah. afterwards. Oh my god, okay. Uh. Anyway, he also somewhat later started to support the Irish cause, oh. and even went so far as to say that Northern Ireland should be given back as well, in order to form a full united Ireland. Wow. He also spoke of an idea of a kind of United States of Europe, in which mainland Europe, and perhaps Britain as well, could unite in some sort of super country or collection of countries. Oh. Uh, which sounds like a lot a lot like the European Union. Oh! In fact, today he is listed as one of the founding fathers of the European Union. Wow! Blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> then he ran for prime minister in 1951 and won Yay! again. <laughs> and Britain went to war the next day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he did a couple of good things for England, but these are often overshadowed by his negative international policies. Mm. He wanted to keep the British Empire at all costs. He's uh, a real imperialist. Got it. Yeah. Old fashioned. Uh, yeah. Uh, during the Mao Mao rebellion in Kenya, Churchill responded by sending troops there and stated, I will not preside over a dismemberment. <laughs> well, that's a pretty funny way of saying that, I guess. I guess. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm guessing he's talking about the British Empire. Right, right. Anyway, so this little war in Kenya resulted in such things as a declared British government state of emergency in Kenya, which protected institutionalized racism. Oh. Uh, the best farmlands were saved for only white settlers, uh, forced removal of the local population, Jesus, and then 150,000 Kenyan men, women, and children were put into basically concentration camps where rape, castration, and torture were regular affairs by the camp guards. Uh, So there's that. Wow. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. Uh, Churchill was also prime minister during the Malayan emergency when Malaya attempted... Malaya? That's how you say it, right? Malaya? It might be Malaya. I don't know. Malaya. Uh, Malaya attempted to rebel against British rule. Churchill decided to use direct military force to keep Malaya as a British colony. What resulted were thousands of deaths, tons of British war crimes... Camps for relocated Malayan people and tons of breaches of the Geneva Convention at the hands of the British. God damn it, Churchill! Uh, no. Other than these blots, though, Churchill continued to try and hold the British Empire together and also tried to maintain good relations with America and the Soviet Union. Okay. But this was harder to do as yeah, no shit. <laughs> Cold War. Uh, however, by now Churchill was struggling with health issues and realized he was oh, slowing God. down both physically <laughs> and mentally. Yeah, so he actually resigned from prime minister in 1955 and suffered a stroke in 1956, which showed that he was nearing the end. And that is it. We are done with this section. You know, I, I gar- I've forgotten who my guy <laughs> is because you wrote an absolute <laughs> metric fuck ton. I had material. to though. It's fucking Winston Churchill. Yeah, I know. I get it. And <sighs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we didn't bore everyone with the politics but hey that's what happened he was yeah. a politician and yep. you know what you chose to listen to this episode <laughs> that's right <laughs> oh we need a break yeah so we're gonna take a break and when we come back we'll be talking about sir arthur curry who you've all forgotten about <laughs> by now we're gonna talk about his adult Good. life and uh how much more interesting it was <laughs> than sure <laughs> no i'm just kidding it's hopefully less racist Ho- oh yes definitely less racist Good. 
Alright, we are back to We Talk About Dead People, and when we left off, we had just finished an entire epic about Churchill's <laughs> life, um, and now we'll be moving back into Sir Arthur Curry's Who the life. fuck is Sir exactly. Arthur Curry? I gotta give you all a, a reminder. Okay. Now, if you remember, Arthur Curry was a lieutenant colonel in the Canadian militia, and was also a successful insurance salesman. Right. That's and basically it. Okay. That's what we know right now. Um, but things are good for him. He was meeting some real financial success as a salesman. Right. Um, and then uh, the Minister of Militia and Defense in Canada ordered an unprecedented military expansion across the land. Huh. This expansion formed entirely new regiments, many of which were made up of Scottish immigrants, including the 50th Regiment Gordon Highlanders of Canada. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Curry was approached to take the job. And the great thing about the 50th Regiment of the Highlanders of Canada is yeah. they dressed like their uniforms were kilts. Oh, things like beautiful. That. Fantastic. Oh. Uh, but unfortunately, Curry was, again, suffering financially. Mm. Like, he had just been doing well, and now he's not doing well anymore. Yeah. His sales are starting to fall, and he has to be tight with his money. And with this new offer to become a regimental commander came the same problem as before. If mm. you remember, if you get an officer position, you have to buy your own uniforms right. and donate your pay to the officer's mess. So, he initially turned it down because he literally couldn't afford it, <laughs> but he was later persuaded to take the job in 1913, less than one year before Archduke Franz Ferdinand would be assassinated and World War I would commence. There it is again. Yeah, World War I. World War I. Mm. Uh, before the war began, however, Curry was in dire financial trouble. Hmm. So he did something that seems underemphasized on most of the resources I can find on him. He stole $10,000 from the 50th Regiment's uniform grant to pay his debts. Wow. This will come up later. <laughs> that takes balls to steal from the army. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so Curry was offered command of a military district in British Columbia, but he turned it down and instead took command of an infantry brigade in the Canadian Expeditionary Force and sailed overseas to join the fighting in World War I. Mm. While he was gone, an inquiry was opened about the status of the uniform grant. So oh, yeah, where's that $10,000? Mm -hmm. So with all that drama behind him for the time being, Curry hit the beach in England in the winter of 1914 and began training with the Canadian 1st Division. Here, here the soldiers not only endured physical training, but also underwent processes meant to harden them mentally before they were exposed to the absolutely hellish conditions uh, that the modernization of war had produced on the hmm. battlefield. Yeah. So in April 1915, Curry and his men were stationed in Ypres, which, if you listen to Hardcore History with Dan Carlin or read a book or something, should send a chill down your spine. Yeah. See, Ypres had already been fought over once a year earlier and had been turned into an absolute garbage dump of rubble and corpses. Oof. That was the first battle of Ypres. And now the second battle of Ypres was actually a battle of firsts. <laughs> oh, no. It was the first time a colonial force, the Canadian First Division, huh. would ever defeat a European power on European land. Wow. Yeah. It was also the first time the Allies would suffer a gas attack. Oh, fuck. So, Sir Arthur Curry is stationed in this really, really awful situation. He and his men are positioned in what's called a salient, mm -hmm. which means uh, a bulge. It's kind of like a bulge in the Allied lines that sticks out into the enemy territory. Right. So, if you just imagine, like... like a peninsula, almost? Uh, a peninsula. Um, I was going to say something about an erection, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of what it looks like, right? Though. It's just this this pocket of allied forces jutting out into enemy territory. Now, if I'm right, those were kind of always the targets of counterattacks, Absolutely, because right? yeah. they're basically surrounded, except for on one side. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the Germans know this spot is vulnerable, and also that it's vital for securing victory. So this is exactly where they decide to launch a gas attack to clean out the Allies. Oh. So the Germans move up to the salient, open their giant fucking canisters of poison gas, and hope the wind blows the gas over the Allied lines. 
It was not a great plan, obviously, <laughs> and some Germans actually died unleasing this oh, shit. shit. Uh, nonetheless, the wind did manage to push the gas over the Allied lines straight through some of Arthur Curry's own men, but mostly through Arthur's friends on his left flank. Oh, no. Now, poison gas is some serious shit. Let me read you a quote uh, just to help you understand what this kind of thing was like. This is from Private W. Hay of the Royal Scots, and he was approaching Ypres after the attack. Oh, I'm not so, ready for this. Yeah, so he's seeing people coming away from it. Yeah. Uh, quote, we knew there was something wrong. We started to march toward Ypres, but we couldn't get past on, uh, past on the road with refugees coming down the road. We went along the railway line to Ypres, and there were some people, civilians, and soldiers lying along the roadside in a terrible state. We heard them say it was gas, and we didn't know what the hell gas was. When we got to Ypres, we found a lot of Canadians, Canadians lying there dead from gas the day before. Poor devils. And it was quite a horrible sight for us young men. I was only 20 or so. It was quite traumatic, and I've never forgotten, nor will I ever forget. Oh, God. Yeah. So, basically, what happens after the Germans launch this gas attack is this. The men tried to hold out against the gas, uh, but had no countermeasures. Oh, Remember, okay. it's the first time this has happened. Oh. No one is wearing a mask. Oh, no. Everyone is dying in absolute agony in the trenches due to this stuff it is time to run and wow. so they do unfortunately doing so opens a seven kilometer pocket in the allied lines allowing the germans to advance uncontested mm. but this is where arthur curry comes in all right he sees the writing on the wall and puts together a new defense plan as well as a carefully planned counterattack. And even with all the chaos and disorganization that came from this terrible attack, it worked <laughs> and completely denied the German advance. Oh, wow. So whatever advantage they'd gotten from the gas was just completely negated by Curry's right. strategy. Uh, unfortunately, by the end of all this, Curry had lost nearly half of his men to poison gas and fighting. Oh, but on the bright side, he was given command of the entire 1st Canadian Division right. because of his strategic abilities. Yeah. Um, so Curry starts to build a reputation as a master of what's called the set-piece assault. Which is to say, he took objectives quickly and with brutal determination and then just dug in to inflict maximum casualties on the German counterattacks, which were inevitable. Mm -hmm. uh, with, his, with this reputation, he began to openly question some of the tactics that were being used in this modern war. Huh. Now, if you'll remember, World War One was basically sit in your trench, shoot, try not to get shot, and every now and then we're going to charge and everyone's going to get shot. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he, he's he got a real problem with this. Good. So he questioned French officers who had been involved in the Battle of Verdun, which which, if you don't know, was an absolute clusterfuck. Yeah. Curry discovered that the narrative the officers told about what went wrong was basically, and what worked was completely different from the actual foot soldiers' experience. Hmm. Basically, officers would attribute losses to cowardice, while the soldiers would report mindless charges into machine gun and rifle fire that cut down anyone who didn't turn oh, back. God. So, like, imagine being in a trench, charge, you go out there, everyone's dying around you, you're fighting your way through some barbed wire, and you're just like, fuck it, so you turn around yep. and go home, and they shoot you. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's yeah, your guys shoot you wow. for retreating. Uh, but anyway, so Curry saw these discrepancies between the uh, foot soldiers' experience and the officer stories, not as indications of cowardice or lack of manpower, but as quite simply tactically uncreative and wasteful strategy. Well said. Yeah. And he was the first guy to, like, really begin to have a problem with this. Huh. So... He wrote up a report and started lecturing fellow officers about the importance of avoiding these ridiculous tactics and instead inventing new strategies that were adaptable to trench warfare. Okay. For this and further victories, Arthur Curry was knighted by the king and given command of the entire Canadian Corps. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, so, but no sooner had he settled into his new office that he learned that the Canadian government had become aware of the money oh, he had no. stolen from the 50th Regiment's uniform oh. grant. <laughs> so he's about to get fired, but... 
Uh, he was able to borrow enough money from his subordinates to finally pay back the debt. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's but now he owes them, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, he's this war hero, and then it's like, oh, yeah, right, he's also a thief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyway, now, Curry... Uh, was now in complete control of the Canadian Corps and was tasked with basically what amounted to a diversionary raid with the aim of sucking as many Germans away from Ypres as possible and funneling them into a kind of kill zone. Okay. So Curry took his men and captured a location known as Hill 70, which was a major tactical loss for the Germans. And when the counterattacks came, Curry had established this kill zone where machine gun fire, sniper fire, and artillery fire would obliterate as many Germans as possible. Jesus. His men inflicted 20,000 casualties in the space of a few days with Canadian losses numbering around 9,000 killed or wounded. Wow. Yeah. So, obviously, it's a good strategy. Yeah. So, uh, after this, Curry and the Canadian Corps were transferred to fight in the Battle of Passchendaele. Oh, no. Yeah. During uh, (laughs) which he did this thing and took the actual village of Passchendaele, which was probably just a pile of rubble, and uh, held this village against German counterattacks. Again, this set-piece assault, right? Yeah. Uh, Now, Passchendaele is a pretty terrible fucking battle. Is there a World War I battle that isn't fucking terrible? Terrible. No, but I mean, Passchendaele was, was like particularly. Known, it know. was known for being like a gigantic mud pit the whole time. Oh. Like people would often sink in the mud and suffocate. Oh, God. This came to be called the slow death. Oh. People who were stuck in the mud would often scream to be shot so they didn't have to die slowly. Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's, I read this great essay about it. It's horrifying. But oh. anyway, um, there were also craters from artillery strikes that filled with water and essentially became poisonous vats of corpses, body parts, and settled poison gas. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah, so if you fall in one of those, you're dead. You're done. Yeah, you're done. Um, and there's no getting out either. You can't... I mean, the hills or other sides it's are all mud. slippery and they're vertical because, again, shelling. Um, but anyway, Curry uh, estimated that his actions in Passchendaele would cost 16,000 casualties. The final number was 15,654. Wow. So he was pretty damn close to his estimate. Yeah. Um, But after Passchendaele, Curry took part in the offensive that effectively ended the war. Really? And the way they did this was, as they were advancing on the Germans, they walked in a zigzag. So, like, German spies would see them going, you know, northeast or whatever. And they would be like, oh, they're going northeast. Like, what's up there? And they would go. And then they find they're walking southeast (laughs) or whatever. Yeah. Um, And they would just change directions in this zigzag. That's awesome. Um, But Curry didn't make it through the war without his critics, which Mm. is, you know... Off, you know, common. Yeah. Uh, back home in Canada, Curry was being portrayed as a butcher for his strategies that essentially aimed to kill as many Germans as possible, which is fair. But then again, yeah. What's the alternative? Sending your own guys to get mowed down by machine gun fire? There, I mean, there's just no positive way to, for, for World War One to be portrayed. It's just, no. If you're yeah. in World War One, you're gonna have a rough time. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Curry went back to Canada after the war. Uh, where he received a lukewarm welcome back to his surprise, uh, but he was promoted to general of the Canadian Army. Wow! So he just worked his way up. Yeah. Right? So, however, uh, he was just about to make just as he was about to make these big visionary changes to the military, his funding was cut in half, hmm. and he was met with a ton of opposition. Sort of like Churchill was like, you know, we need to disarm after World War One. Yeah. Um, but unable to do what he wanted, Curry retired from the military in 1920 and went to work as a vice chancellor at McGill University. Here he used his leadership and organizational skills to upgrade the university university by basically becoming a traveling salesman, touting the qualities of the university and seeking donations. Oh, good for him. Which is great. Yeah. Um, I also want to point out, before I end this, um, he never graduated high school and he's working at university. Oh, wow. Anything is possible, yeah. kids. <laughs> um, but... Anyway, when we come back to Sir Arthur Curry, we'll be talking about his final days and legacy. But I think now it's time to move back to Churchill. Yeah. (laughs) 
and um, see how he ends. Well, yes. Um, talk about his legacy a little so, bit. So, let's talk about his end and death. Okay. Uh, so, Churchill retired and spent most of his time in his home at Hyde Park Gate in London. Uh, he began suffering from depression again. Oh. This was something that he had always struggled with uh, his entire life, and now that he wasn't in the spotlight of power anymore, it hit hard. Oh, and, damn. You know, we've talked about this, like... A lot of, you know, power-hungry people suffer with depression. Yeah, especially when there's no game to play with other people's lives. As long as they can, the more control they have, the better they feel about Mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, Anyway, so during this time, he also continued to suffer from strokes and also started to go deaf. Uh, Then he was knighted. Okay. (laughs) Uh, And also President JFK made him an honorary citizen of the United States. But Churchill couldn't attend the White House for the ceremony because he was so sick. Oh. Finally, on January 15th, 1965, Winston Churchill suffered a severe stroke at his London home and died nine nine days later on Sunday, January 24th. He was 90 years old. Wow. Yeah. That's old. Uh, Churchill's funeral was the largest state funeral in world history up to this time. 350 million people watched uh, worldwide on television. Uh, only the Republic of Ireland did not broadcast it live. Understandable. Yeah. yeah. So Churchill is buried at St. Martin's Church in Bladden. And that's about it. Uh, he's remembered as a British hero and has a million awards and places named after him. But he also did some not-so-great things. Yeah, and what's interesting is, like, you want to talk about a great man? Mm-hmm. I mean, that has, a, that has a connotation of, like, he was also a good man. But you might say right. that Churchill was a great man in the sense that he probably shaped our modern world with yeah. his actions more than any... Well, I mean, maybe not more than anybody else, but he, he's at least a competitor for one of the most world-changing lives uh, yeah. to pass on this planet. And... Um, and he was really the guy that Britain needed during World War II. That's true. He did. Yeah. He was needed during World War II. But it, I mean, you just look at the way things are cut up territorially all around the world, and you know Churchill and all of his guys and all those people up there yeah. during that time. Just that's why the world's shaped the way it is today. Yeah. It's because of guys like this. Yeah. So in, anyway, and at the same time, he's a war hawk, an imperialist, and a racist. Yeah, which is so, just, um, uh, but good anyway. and bad. <laughs> So let's move to our, uh, Sir Arthur Curry's end in death, yeah. who I feel like he got the short end of the stick on this episode. So well, um, yeah. we're going to do a little more about his legacy. Yes. Um, so when we left Sir Arthur Curry, he was working at leadership at McGill University post-war. Uh, but in November of 1933, he suffered a stroke and died within a few weeks. Mm. His funeral was held in Montreal, and it was the largest ever in Canadian history at that time. Oh, wow. About 150,000 people showed up to huh. his funeral. But it's time to talk about the honors that Curry earned in his career. He basically got every military medal you can earn and was awarded 19 (laughs) honorary degrees. Wow. He has schools named after him, a national park named after him, buildings named after him. It's crazy. Uh, He was described by many historians as Canada's greatest military commander. That's a funny sentence. Yeah, right? (laughs) Um, And it's arguable that without him on the line during World War I putting his mind to work on developing better tactics, Germany might have actually pushed through the line at Ypres. Wow. Uh, Who knows what might have happened after that. Wow. So even though you know Arthur Curry he's not as big a figure as as Winston Churchill so there's just simply not the same amount of material yeah um but this guy I mean he had he probably had a bigger effect on the world than Churchill even in a, in in a, a matter way, of speaking yeah. because <laughs> if they had pushed through at Ypres who knows I know exactly wow but uh I think it's time to move into our new section of the show what? called uh what 
A new section? Yeah, we have a new section. We do? Yeah, it's called Honorable Mentions. Oh. And these are the people. (laughs) uh, These are three people that I have looked at uh, to use as candidates on the show, but there's just simply not as much material about them, just like, you know, uh, Mr. Curry here. Yes. Um, But, uh, yeah, they're worth talking about anyway. So I found one lady called Barbara Ernie, and she was a woman with just red blonde hair and had great strength who traveled across the European countryside with a large treasure chest on her back. Okay. Um, But wherever she rested for the night, she would demand that her chest be locked in the best and most secure room available, since she claimed it contained a fabulous treasure. Once the treasure was locked away and night fell, a small man would emerge (laughs) from the chest or backpack and would gather the valuables from the best room, (laughs) after which Ernie and the man would flee during the night. Wait, wait, let me get this straight. So, there's a little man (laughs) in her backpack. That's exactly right. So she has, you know... The inn owners or whatever put it with their most valuable things. Mm-hmm. This little guy crawls out of the the trunk and then steals everything there. Yep, <laughs> she became very wealthy. <laughs> yeah. um, wow! And uh, so she and her male accomplice, though, were arrested at Esken. Esken. Mm. And imprisoned at Vaduz on the 27th of May, 1784. She was tried by Liechtenstein, or Liechtenstein, and she admitted to 17 thefts oh. using this trick. <laughs> wow. They found her guilty and sentenced her to death by beheading. Oh. Yeah. So, but we don't actually know what happened to the little guy, though. Oh, that's yeah. sad. I'm assuming he just, like, <laughs> put put the chest on wheels and, like, rolled away with all the treasure. It's just like, hey, fuck you! Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so our second candidate for honorable mentions uh-huh. uh, is a guy named Abbo Emius. Uh, he's a Dutch historian and Calvinist, and I only put him on here because his name is Abbo, and that's pretty sweet. Abbo is a great name. <laughs> Abbo Emius. Yeah. And then there's Samuel Argall, who kidnapped Pocahontas. <laughs> And that's all we have. That's all I'm telling. Okay. I mean, he, he, he had he had more to him, but that's basically, that's basically what, it. That's what he's best known for. Samuel so, Argyll. Kidnap wow. Pocahontas. Yep. Is, wow. <sighs> well, I think we should go up to the surface. Yeah. yeah I, I am ready for bed. Yeah. Let's go. That was a long fucking episode. <laughs> so long. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, th- I, if you've made it this far, listeners, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for bearing with us. Um, hopefully, you found it interesting. Um, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today, though. Um, feel free to send all your hate mail to We Talk About Dead People Podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to have the fucking vending machine rip you off and deprive you of your potato chips helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his phenomenal work at www.ipatterson.com. Illustration.com. You can also find us on Facebook at uh, We Talk About Dead People on Facebook. Give us a like, give us a follow. You know, you know. Um, with all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of heroism play you out. 